But what was interesting for me in this climbing that I was faced with something I really wanted to learn because I also found it really fun and I was attracted to it, but then I was terrified by it. And how you, how do you go with that? That for me was, I think the beginning of a journey where I stopped doing research on fear and started experimenting with methods to overcome fear. Hi, I'm Daphne Cohn. Welcome to the first Creativity Habit podcast of 2018, the podcast where I have conversations with the artists and makers who use creativity to make this world a better, saner, more beautiful place to live. This week is with fear researcher and productivity expert, Rowan Van Voorst. Rowan used to be an overworked academic who was scared of pretty much everything, including speaking publicly, flying, big dogs, taking risks, and heights. Then she started to put her research into practice, and here's a little bit of what her life looks like now. Rowan works only four hours a day, but she's more productive than she's ever been. In the last six years, she's published six books, two fiction and four nonfiction, including her latest, Fear, Extreme Athletes on How to Reach Your Highest Goals and Overcome Stress and Self-Doubt. She's also created two in-depth online programs about fear and time management. She coaches privately. She flies around the world speaking publicly. She has a dog. She drives all over. And in our off time, she rock climbs. In this interview, we talk about the exact steps that Roanne used to go from being an overworked academic run by fear to who she is today and where she is today. Roanne shares her step-by-step process for overcoming fear, the two things you need to know about fear, her personal system for getting a lot more done in much less time without sacrificing rest or self-care. And it's an amazing system. I started implementing it as soon as I learned about it and how to live a more courageous life doing what you love. May you enjoy this conversation and may it inspire you to make your thing and change your world. Hello, Roanne, and welcome to the Creativity Habit Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You are the first person that I've ever had the chance to talk with who is a fear researcher. And this was really why I wanted to be able to talk, to have you on the podcast and to delve into this topic of fear, primarily because my experience as a creative entrepreneur and my experience working with other entrepreneurs as well as other artists and makers is that If I had to boil down the one thing that gets in the way between us wanting to make our thing and getting out into the world and making our thing and getting out into the world, I would say that would be fear. And so that's why I really wanted to talk to you about fear. And then, of course, your other piece is time management and productivity, which is another really big piece for (laughs) creatives. So we're going to get into both of those. And um I'm really excited. I'm looking, so, yeah. I'm looking forward to talking about it because, I, like you say, it's something that I think all human beings probably struggle with, but I would say especially entrepreneurs because it's, you know, and makers because putting something out there that you've made yourself and then taking financial risks or saying out loud that you're going to do something but you have no way of knowing whether you can succeed, that is scary. It is. And you've done a lot of that. So it's going to be helpful to also hear about your experience around that. Uh, I wanted to start with this idea of what you talk about on your website, which is you say that you help people live more courageous lives. 
And to break down, I, I like to not assume anything in terms of mm. definitions and our understandings of the definitions. So how would you describe what it means to live a courageous life? Well, that's a really good question, actually, because I don't say a fearless life. And there's a reason for that, because I think like to me, courage is a thing that I find very inspirational and something that I strive to have in my own life. And that I think we should all strive towards in our lives because it doesn't say you're fearless. Instead, it says you may have fears every now and then, only you've decided that something else is more important. So you will not be stopped by the fact that, you know, coincidentally, you have this fear. Um, and I think that that type of bravery is not the same as, oh, I don't feel fear, I'll just jump from a cliff, you know, that's just being crazy, probably. <laughs> but, but being courageous means, hmm, I'm feeling this fear, I'm analyzing it, and I'm trying to overcome it because I really want to go there even though it's scary. How a lot of times I think with fear, we don't even always notice that it is fear. It just comes up as an excuse, right? Like how how do we separate out and really get to the bottom of what's going on here is that I'm scared? Yeah, I think that the first thing you really need to understand, there's probably two things you want to know about fear. The first thing is, what you want to know is whether it's a rational fear or an unrational fear, right? I mean, there are circumstances where you have the decision to do something dangerous, like physically dangerous, for example, and I would never particularly encourage that unless doing it is so important that you couldn't live otherwise. You know, for some people, that's the case. Um, but but for most of us, like you know, driving a car while you've had too many beers, that's just dangerous. That's, you know, if you are afraid to get into that car, well, you're probably right. You probably shouldn't. But if you're afraid to drive a car because you once had an accident, um, then the fear of driving again is not necessarily rational. It's, you know, it's a resemblance of the past, but it doesn't really say anything about your future with driving. And so then if you want to gain that freedom to be able to visit your old mother who lives in a different state or a different city, then it becomes super important to overcome that fear, right? So the first thing you need to understand is whether your fear is rational or irrational. And in my training programs, I, I help people make an analysis sometimes of, you know, is my fear rational or irrational? And then the second thing that I think we all need to understand is what type of fear is hindering me. And sometimes we don't know. Sometimes we think it's this fear, but it's really something else. For example, sometimes you think you're afraid to take a financial risk with your entrepreneur business, or you think you're afraid to uh, quit your job and start something else because you say, well, I have a family and I need to take care of them. Sure. But once you ask deeper, once you really ask yourself the question, why would it be so horrible if I would do this and fail, then for many people, something else uh, comes to the surface. And that might be a fear to, you know, 
not succeed in life affair to having your parents and your husband seeing that you took the leap and you failed. You weren't as good as you said you would be. Um, you know, that's a very different fear. That's a fear. That's a social fear. That's a fear of failure. And so if you want to work on that fear, you need to know what it is. So the first step then it's, is getting clear on, first of all, whether it's a rational or irrational fear, and then going in, inside of the fear really to say, okay, this is what I'm saying it is, but is that true? And what is beneath that? Exactly. What fear might be beneath exactly. that? I'm yeah. I'm wondering though, with a more surface level, like for example, one thing that happens a lot with just making the thing you want to make. Maybe it's writing or writing a book. Maybe it's painting a painting. Maybe it's putting together a dance performance or starting a business. And there's you know any number of things. And what comes up for a lot of people isn't so much like, oh, I. I'm afraid of this big, of taking this big leap as much as they'll say things to themselves. And I've certainly done this many, many, many times of, well, I don't have the time. I'm too busy or I'll do it when my kids are older or I'll do it when I'm not having to take care of my older parents or I just have, there's, you know, all sorts of reasons why we can't do the thing that we feel somehow drawn to doing. And yeah. would you describe that as fear or something else? It can be fear. It certainly can be fear. And it's true, like you say, a lot of us might not even be aware that it is fear. But fear is one of the major things, I think, that is holding us back. And sometimes what can help, if you would portray a person that you would like to be, like the type of woman that you perhaps if you see her Instagram feed, you're kind of like, you know, half jealous, yeah. <laughs> kind of like you have this, you have this feeling like, oh, why is she showing off her perfect life? But not in a way that is fake to you, but more in a way like I, I'd really want to have that life. You know, sometimes, sometimes I with my course participants or people who come to my workshops, I make them really think about what type of person would you like to be you know if you would dare anything if you would have the means if there were no hindrances well if in such an exercise immediately this picture comes up of this free woman you know the type of woman that get, gets up in the morning you know looks forward to her work day because she's doing this awesome business she has fun with her clients you know all those things or the type of artist that can't wait to get started with her work. Um, well, you know, if all that becomes true in your imagination, you know, if that's really who you want to be, then probably all the excuses about not having time are untrue. Because if you really, really want something, you can make time for it. I mean, I'm not saying it's easy. It's, you know, no coincidence that I also offer trainings on time management and, and productivity. But I've seen so many examples of people who manage to do a lot while still having the energy and the fun because they're pursuing what they love, right? And I mean, it's oftentimes it's the easy way out to just say, well, I don't have any money or I don't have any time. Um, 
while in actuality there's fear saying or there's just this tiny little voice saying it's nonsense just even thinking about that you know don't don't be don't be like that. Don't think that it's all for you. Well, maybe it is all for you, you know, and maybe it can be easier than you think if you find the right way and if you find the courage to just gradually and strategically work towards it. Yes. Yeah, so how do we start to sort out the difference between, and I mentioned time, but I'm also thinking actually like when someone might think, oh, I don't have enough training. I don't have enough experience. I haven't been doing it long enough. Uh, yeah. I, I know. Yeah. So how do we begin to sort that out and actually name it often for what it is, which is I'm just scared. And I mean, would you say in in that case that you, you would name it that, that it's fear and then do what you mentioned earlier of like, so what is the real fear here? Or is there another approach well, to it? Yeah, there's also another approach to it, most certainly. I think, you know, because you're you're mentioning something so important. Oftentimes we we are waiting until somebody else, maybe, or some voice, I don't know where from, says, you know, you're good enough, you're ready. Um, or you're allowed, I give you permission. So, I mean, it does start with giving yourself permission to take that step or to try something out or to call yourself an artist or to start coaching people. But then, you know, there's this voice saying, oh, but I haven't, I haven't read enough. I haven't listened to enough podcasts, right? I, I, I haven't have, I haven't gathered enough experience, whatever it may be. But the thing is, if you want to become braver and if you want to become better at what you do, you have to start first. It's not like you can sit and wait until self-confidence comes at you. It's more that you do tiny things, you take little steps, and in that way you'll grow your self-confidence and you'll get better at what you do. So, I mean, just on, um, if people say, I'm really scared to do this, sometimes they're too scared to immediately doing that activity, which is fine. But you do want to kind of practice with other things that you find a little bit scary. So what I often do with people is I ask them to make a bravery list, <laughs> which is filled with things that aren't super scary. So they're not panicking you, but they are slightly, you know, uncomfortable. Um, and they can be small things like, you know, um, going to the movies by yourself. If you're the type of person that always does things in a group, um, I don't know, speaking the next time your mom calls you and says, how are you doing? Honestly saying, well, mom, not so well, instead of I'm fine, you know, just things that are slightly uncomfortable for you, uh, but not so much that they really terrify you. And then they just kind of work on doing those small brave things in their lives like once a week you know or twice a week or every day one whatever feels good for them and oftentimes what these people notice is that they're braver than they thought they were and that they're kind of how do you call that that they're kind of shifting their self image of who they are like oftentimes especially women do this 
we say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm just not like that. I'm not that brave. I'm the type of person that rather keeps silent. I would never do that. You know, those types of things. And every, th- every time we repeat it, either in our head or out loud, we kind of fixate this idea of ourselves as the scaredy cat, right? Yeah. And so just doing small things, even if it's not directly the one scary thing that you eventually would like to work on, just doing small scary stuff really helps you to reset that self-image and to basically prove to yourself that you're more capable, more verbal, more, you know, whatever you need than you might have imagined. And that will make it easier in a couple of weeks from now to start working on that one thing because you've kind of collected evidence that you're pretty brave already. So that's one thing that I would really encourage people to do. Start before you're ready. Practice with doing small, scary stuff. And actually, before we get into your own personal story around this, that seems like another piece there is you start with the small things and so that you start to see yourself differently and you build up your confidence. And then that last thing you said, Roanne, about like you kind of you hinted at this, which is to take the time to acknowledge it so that we don't oh, just, yes. like move on to that next thing, but really start to integrate. Oh, this is the kind of person I am. I'm someone who can do this or can do that with and and begin to build our confidence that way yeah and definitely you know the thing is that we oftentimes we don't want to be afraid i mean most of the people i've worked with over the years we find being afraid or being fearful we find it something you know it's stupid it's embarrassing it's annoying at utmost um but I've also, you know, I've, I've done research on fear and, and courage for like nearly a decade now. And so I've been able to interview like some of the bravest people in the world and people who are super courageous and people who do really scary shit. <laughs> and those people, um, they have their fears as well, but they take it much more seriously and they are much more self-empathic, if I may say so. So they are... Like if they feel fear creeping up, they won't just try to, you know, put it aside or act as if it's not there, which you and I probably, you know, that's what you and I would do. Like, oh, I feel embarrassed that I'm the one not able to drive a car while my husband always does it without any problem. And so you're kind of, you know, like, oh, I just don't like driving a car. And you kind of act like it's not there. Well, with the really courageous people of the world, they take it super seriously and they almost start questioning it, you know, researching it like, hmm, interesting. What is this? What can I do to work with it? And so eventually they'll get there. But we don't get there because we don't give it a time. We don't even want to look at it. We just want to repress it, right? Well, it's interesting because it sounds like the difference is that they're not identifying as too scared to do something. They're not saying they can't do it because they're too scared. They they just don't do that thing. They're, they already identify as somebody who says, I can do these things, and now there's fear. So there's something to pay attention to here. It's almost like there's this level of observation or separation that seems to, that takes place between the people who are willing to 
use fear more as a tool, as a guidance, as opposed to the rest of us who just let it direct us and decide for us what we're going to do. Yeah. Yeah. And also, like you say, we identify with it. A lot of people say, well, I am always so scared in these situations, or I am just not brave like that. Well, if you listen to how the most courageous people of the world, for example, speak about themselves, they, they will never say, I am afraid. They say, oh, that's interesting. I have some fears. You know, I am pretty brave, but I have some fears every now and then. And that's a big difference. It's huge. It reminds me of an interview I did a while back with a woman named Kat Popova, who um, is a creator of a, she's an artist and has a magazine. And she said that for many, I think it was like for like every day, but it was for a couple of years or something. I don't, maybe it's still every day. I can't remember. But she said, I would say to myself, I am an artist. And just that Yes. would shift things dramatically for her so that she would get out and start making art or so that she would take the next step on her in her art career. But it was really crucial to say, I am an artist. Yeah. And I think the same goes for, you know, if you, if you would want to be more courageous, it really helps to imagine, you know, make a mood board. <laughs> uh, if you're into Pinterest, go with that, you know, collect all those jealous making photos of the type of women that you want to be like I have one of those mood boards mine is mine is like always outdoors and she's never cold and she's never tired and she's this sensual kind of cool rock chick um and it really helps me to start acting as though I were already like she is just you know act like you are already so brave and it really lightens up everything you know, it just like my brave chick, for example, like she's fun, you know, she just laughs if she gets afraid sometimes and then she just kind of deals with it instead of, you know, becoming all whiny and mad at myself and be like, oh, shit, why am I afraid again? She she would just kind of deal with it. Um, and sometimes it helps to fake it until you make it right. Sometimes it helps to play like you're braver than you are just so that you feel more relaxed because that's what it does and it gives you a sense of strength and even if you may not be that courageous yet it does help you to stand up straight and to work on it i love that idea of creating a whole board of images to reflect back to you how you want to be yes. so that you just keep taking that in every single time you look at it like oh yeah that's the person I want to yeah. be. That's how I want to show up. So let, let's actually go into your story a little because you live, you do a lot of things now that many would look at and say, wow, she's courageous. She must be fearless. And But you weren't like that a while back. You, you had a lot of fear. So talk about this transformation from having a lot of fear and yeah. letting it stop you to living the life that you're living today. Yeah, I guess, you know, it's funny because nowadays people indeed, if they only see my social media or if they see me, you know, giving a public talk, they think I'm that cool chick. <laughs> uh, and then I have to remind them that I'm really not like I've had a lot of fears. I still have my fears. Of course, I'm, you know, just a human being. Um, but it's true also that I found kind of my fascination in fear and I started to investigate what it did to me 
And then, of course, I've had, I've had the advantage of being a researcher, and so I could learn the best methods to overcome it, and that kind of helped when I started experimenting with that. But I guess I was, um, I'm 34 years old now. I'm a researcher, and I combine that with writing fiction and nonfiction, um, giving public speech, like I'm a speaker, and then giving on and offline trainings, right? So I've created a job that I find pretty awesome. But I think about 10 years ago, I was only doing the research stuff, and I wasn't really feeling comfortable in that job, uh, but it was a job that I was really good at. Like, I'm good at learning stuff, and so it you know, seemed natural for me to go to university and to obtain my PhD and to go there while I really didn't feel so much at home. I think I had fear of stepping outside of that world, perhaps fear of disappointing, you know, my parents, the people around me, all those things. I also had a fear of failure. Like I was the typical hardworking person who never took holidays. I was always in the office until seven or eight in the evening. And then I would do a little bit more work to, you know, I was always trying to please my employers. Um, I also had a fear of driving. I had a fear of flying in airplanes, so I didn't really like doing that. And then I had a huge fear of heights, um, which I didn't really notice that often because I just avoided going to anywhere high, like whether it be a ladder or a mountainous area. I live in the Netherlands, which is probably the flattest region <laughs> on earth, and I was fine over there. Until, of course, I started rock climbing because I met a man that was rock climbing and who thought it might be a cute idea if I would accompany him to a climbing gym. And this and, was before you'd ever done any climbing. Yes. It was the first time in my life. And he thought it would be a very romantic date. Did and he I know about your fear of, flying, of uh, climbing, of heights? No, not okay. really, because it just never was a topic, you know. And he thought, you know, she likes hiking. She might like this as well. And I did like it. Like, I did like the puzzle that a climb can put you for like you know I, I like the challenge I'd always been a sporty type I just didn't like the height and I disliked it so much that after my first climb I came down terrified pale trembling all over and you know my boyfriend back then was like oh you know do you are you okay you look a bit sick and I'm like well where's the bathroom and I was just in time throwing up I was just in time on on the toilet. So that was the end of our very romantic date. Um, but what was interesting for me in this climbing that I was faced with something I really wanted to learn because I also found it really fun. And I was attracted to it, but then I was terrified by it. And how, you, how do you go with that? That for me was, I think, the beginning of a journey where I stopped doing research on fear and started experimenting with methods to overcome fear. And this has helped me overcome not only fear of heights, but also the flying, you know, the fear of failure, all the other things on my road. You said uh, in a piece, you said, I've learned in 
how to prepare myself mentally for scary situations, and I started to understand why popular fear management techniques such as positive affirmations and shock therapy didn't have any positive impact on me, and what did help me to become more courageous. So I think that's actually on your website. What So what are some of the pieces, like what did you use, for example, around your fear of heights to get you to the place where you are now, which is as a rock climber? Yeah. Um, yeah, one of the things that really gets me mad sometimes still is when, you know, there's this popular tendency of um, shock therapy. There's this popular idea of shock therapy. And the idea is that if you're afraid of heights or if you're afraid of spiders or whatever, you know, there's always this uncle on some birthday party that will tell you, oh, are you afraid of heights? Well, you know, you just should, you should just try to, and then he comes with this outrageous idea, jump off a cliff with a parachute, and then you're over your fear for once and for all, you know, that idea. And there's actually a stream in psychology that's still pursuing that line of thought, um, you know, pushing people to kind of shock themselves so much that they've proved to themselves once and for all that nothing can happen if you do this uh, supposedly dangerous act and then you know you don't have any fear which is I mean for most people who are afraid you know it's the worst thing that you can do because the only thing that you can that you do if you push yourself so hard is that you increase the level of stress enormously in your body and so your body saves that level of stress, like the, the memory of that level of stress. And so the next time you'll ever try to do that thing again, you'll just rem be reminded of the scariness. Um, so for a lot of the people I work with, they've tried this, you know, they were like, well, I was afraid to drive or I was afraid. And then somebody said, well, just go and drive on a highway and you'll be over it. And I just ended up crying half of the way and I never want to drive a car again. You know, for most of the people, that's just not how it works. Shock therapy is not helpful at all. So for me, that was certainly the case. Like there's a lot of climbers out there who say, well, if you're if you're afraid of heights, you just need to like make a big whipper, as they call it, which is a big fall where you fall into the rope eventually. But you'll you know, you'll fly through the air for a couple of seconds. Um, I found that it made things worse, much worse. Um, and so then I started experimenting with something which is actually evidence-based and it comes, you know, all different types of studies show that this works much better for most people. And it's more of a gradual exposure. I always call it uh, working your fear muscle where you kind of approach your fear as though it was a muscle in your body that you could train and you need to kind of have a fear a strong fear muscle before you can tackle that one thing. And so what you do is not dropping yourselves meters through the air, um, but instead you'll go to a place where it's really not scary, but slightly uncomfortable, but that's all. And you stay there for a couple of seconds, you practice a little bit, and then you stop before you feel stress. And so for people who learn to drive a car again from with me for example sometimes the first couple of days 
This means literally opening the car, sitting behind the wheel, and not even turning on the engine, but just, you know, breathing and sitting there. And they'll look at me and be like, well, you know, is this all because this is really not scary? And that's exactly right. And then you have to stop and go back the next week or the next day. Because what you do in that way is that you allow your body to build up a new memory to that activity. And the new memory is, this is really not so bad, you know? This is even kind of boring. Um, and only when it becomes really boring, you take another mini step. And I've, I've done it this way, and, you know, people always say to me, well, you know, but then it's taking such a long time. And I'm like, well, first of all, it's going to be sustainable. Second of all, you won't end up crying either in that wall or in the car, which is kind of nice, you know, it's more romantic if you do it. Crying and throwing up. Yeah, throwing up, you know, you, you can avoid that. And then third, and most important, it often goes so much faster than you think. Like nowadays, when I'm climbing, um, I really enjoy, you know, climbing high roots like I'll be up a couple of hundred feet and I'm fine and I'm enjoying the view and I I could never have thought that maybe even two years ago or one year ago so it goes pretty fast and in this way it's it's nice towards yourself it's a kind even fun journey to adventure on and not so much a hard pushy modus yeah, that's exactly the word that was going through my head when you were describing this. It was like, oh, that's so kind. And I think yeah. we're in a culture right now. I don't know how it is in the Netherlands, but it's certainly like this in the United States where it's so much about, like, I, I don't know what's happened to kindness, but it's about just forging ahead. And I I was listening to someone the other day talking about his goals for the year. He's a, a mentor. On, and he was saying one of his goals is, to create a SWAT team, like a SWAT, like a SWAT approach, like team approach to his time scheduling, and we'll get into time scheduling, where he was going to weaponize every hour and have it be as streamlined as possible. And I thought, my God, what are we, what are we doing? Yeah. Weaponizing our hours, like it's so. When you describe that, Roanne, it's like there's just relief of ah, oh, it can be kind, it can be gentle. Yeah, and at the same time, it can be effective, you know, because it's, I mean, all of the studies basically point to the same direction, like this is what works with everybody. So the other, you know, that's just a myth, but it sounds cool. But then we kind of harass ourselves thinking like, oh, I don't even dare to do that shock therapy. I'm not brave enough and it becomes worse. And I agree with what you say, like, especially in online entrepreneur world, Everything is pretty kind of harsh, I would almost say. Like it's, you know, it's all for the big success. We have to move fast. We have to be busy. We have to hustle, hustle, hustle. You know, there's a very harsh vibe to that. And I really don't want to go there. I I don't feel comfortable in that world. And I also think that there's an alternative road where we can stay more connected to ourselves and stay kind both towards ourselves and towards the outer world. Because I don't know what happens to you if you even think about, you know, webinaring each hour or whatever it's called and, you know, hustle, hustle, hustle. I, I can always feel my body tensing. Like I don't become the nicest 
version of myself towards, you know, my husband. And I become stressed if I even think about doing that or if I try doing that. And so I end up being a version of myself that I really don't want to be. And I think there's, if you take the alternative road, maybe it's a little side trip, but you'll get to the same results, but it just feels better. Yeah, that actually brings me really perfectly into the whole idea of productivity and time management. And one of the things that you and I talked about before this interview was the way that you organize your day. So I'm going to read a quote that you said before you tell us how you organize your day. And then I want to talk about how just that short conversation has already impacted my life. So um, you said... When you were talking about your academic job, so this is working in academia, and this was many years ago, but uh, when when this was when you were talking about this time period, so you say there were also things about my new academic job that I didn't like. One of them was the culture of overwork, in which working endless hours was regarded not only as normal but as something positive and necessary. For several years, I went along with it. I worked very hard and felt exhausted, but it was never enough. When I'd leave the office at 8 in the evening, most of the lights in other offices were still lit. I felt like a faker, a fraud, as if I wasn't a proper or real academic as the others seemed to be. After some years of trying to make this culture my own, I noticed two things. Not only was I so tired of work that I lacked energy for other aspects of my life, I also felt that I was becoming less creative and inspired. My life felt too narrow, as if I could only develop part of my identity. For a long time, I was in doubt whether I should get back into journalism, but at some point I decided to give it one more chance. I'd experiment to see whether I could be an academic on my own terms. And although it's an extremely unconventional way of working, it works well for me. So I want to get into your own terms. And one of the biggest reasons that I want to get into this is because of what we were just talking about, that a lot of times when we think we're going to make something happen, we think now we just need to demand even more of ourselves. We need to put even more time in. So what changes did you make and how has that affected your life? Yes. Well, I started to do way less (laughs) Um, and not in a way... I didn't become lazy, but I started to do less of that overwork and I started to question all of the activities and time that I spent on, am I being productive or am I just being busy? And, you know, or am I being productive or am I just being active is another way of, of asking yourself this question. And most of the time, I found myself just being active because I had been learned that that's the way to go. Like, you need to do something all the time. But I think maybe that was a good, efficient way of working in the time when we were all still working in factories or on the land. Um, But nowadays, especially if you're making art or if you're in the online business like like you and I are... um, Working eight or 10 or 12 hours a day is not only um, exhausting, but it's also unproductive. Like I'm not making my best work if I'm exhausted in my mind, if I'm if my brains are, are fried, you know. And so what I started to experiment with is with radically shorter work days, but working in a much more focused way. Um, and much more, I would add, from the heart. So not so much from my to-do list, from my agenda, but more from the idea of what type of academic 
do I want to be? What do I find a really important article that I want to work on? And so I, I started experimenting over the years. Um, I found it super scary the first years. I mean, speaking of fear, but then I obtained my PhD and it was with honors, which was kind of, you found it super scary to change the way that you were working. Yeah. Yeah, to go home at like three o'clock in the afternoon and be like, I've done enough for the day. That was that went straight, you know, into everything that I saw around me. And of course, I was afraid that I wasn't delivering the the products or the articles or that I wasn't being, you know, hardworking enough. But then I found that that my the quality of my articles really rose. And more of that, I found that I was basically having the same and products like I wasn't delivering less it was just as much but I felt less exhausted and so you know over the span of years I've kind of developed a work rhythm that works for me and I still maintain to do it in academia I also do it with my writing and my online business and talk a little bit about that method and then um, yeah so what, what I do is I basically divide my days it can you know um, differ a little bit but I basically defer my days into three stages I have four hours a day in which I really work so I call that my output I work on articles or books or trainings that are super important to me that I do want to write or work on but it's hard focused work like I really concentrate in that modus then after four hours I, you know, my brains have had enough for the day. And so I make sure that I get four hours of input, which for me might be going on to an artist date. It might be journaling. It might be self-study. I read a lot of books that uh, help me grow both in my job as in my career, as in my personal life. Um, You know, I just do things that feed me, so to say. And then I have another four hours where I try to reflect and rest. And um, for me, that's oftentimes it's rock climbing because I'm a rock climber. It might be hiking with my dog. It might be being outside in nature, but it can also be something creative. Um, So not working on my new novel because that's still output, but, you know, finding new inspiration or, you know, trying out some poetry, even though I'm not really good at that, but just, you know, to give myself some space to um, be silent really and to get new inspiration and I for me this type of work so the four hours output for input and for rest balance reflect really made me as productive as I've never been Hmm. well I think a few things I think one of the things that's important to underscore here because a lot of people might feel like (laughs) I don't have 12 hours to segment my day that way. But one thing that you said in the beginning that's important is you began working less so that you had more time. You became much more focused around what was important to you and much more focused during that work time. You weren't writing and then browsing on the internet and then cleaning something and taking a walk. You were just doing the focused time and from that, I imagine, dramatically decreased the amount of time then, as you said, dramatically decreased the amount of time you needed to be putting into those activities. So 
I think that if we feel like we don't have a lot of time, one of the things that you're saying is you are able to reduce the amount of time that you spent working. So that's absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah, I totally get it. Like, you know, a couple of years back, I think 10 years or so when that book came out for our work week, yeah. I, I disagree with that book. Like there's some important lessons in it, but I don't think, you know, it is for all of us. Um, and I don't think we need that, but I do think that for almost everybody, it is possible to reduce the amount of time that you spend on things that you don't really find valuable, that you don't really want to do. And for, for many of us, it can be procrastination. You know, if for many of us, I think if we would really track down what we spent on working and what we spent on watching dancing cats on internet, <laughs> it's way more than we would like to have it, right? And I mean, people underestimate this, but if you, if you are distracted by your WhatsApp or by your, you know, iText phone message or your messenger on Facebook or by checking an email, every time you do that, it costs your brain a lot of time to get back on the task. So even, you know, even if you sit behind the desk all day uh, and you feel like you're working, but, you know, all you do is every half hour or so you check your Facebook, then probably you're working way less efficient than you could. And so, yeah, of course you'll need eight hours to get that done because you're basically ruining it all for your brains, you know. And so there are ways to stop doing that. And then the time that you still have left to actually finish that task and feel less tired afterwards because you know working on computers and thinking and creative work can be pretty exhausting especially if you combine it with dancing cats the whole day <laughs> um that really works for most of the people and i you know i offer a year training for people who are in my inner circle and for for many of them they do the training because of what I teach about how you can decrease your, your time and make your time more efficient, but especially because it's a new way of working for them. And it can be scary to experiment with it, like, ooh, I'm only gonna do this for four hours and then I'm done. Um, but most of them find that it works for them as well, even if in the beginning they say, well, I can't do that because I have a very different type of life or I have such a busy family life or, I have this boss who's so demanding, or I have a PhD and a baby, how do you expect me to work less? You know, even for them, I have never had a participant in my online training who wasn't able to dramatically reduce work hours while still, you know, producing good quality work or even better work. So I really think it's more about how you do it than about what you do. Yeah, that's great. I think there's speaking of the dancing cats thing, I remember there's a book called Deep Work by Cal Newport. Do you know that book? Yeah, I do. I yeah. do. So I I love that book and and one of the things that he says is that if we get interrupted or interrupt ourselves by watching a dancing cat video as an example, then it takes us on average, but the, supposedly it takes 5 times longer to complete the task that we had set yeah, out to do. 
Other people say 40% longer. Yeah, I mean, the, the numbers differ, but definitely it's a, it's a great distraction for your brains and it really hinders your, your work. It does. And I mean, we often, I think we underestimate, like we think we own these apps on our phones, but we don't own them. You know, we are the products, not right. the apps. And they're made to to make us addicted to them. And we are. (laughs) All of us are. Absolutely. I know. I have two kids and I watch that a lot. I see. And I see it in myself. And I think um, one of the... So I wanted to share my experience because you had talked to me before this interview about this idea of the input and the output in the four hours. And interestingly enough, right before um, having a long winter break, I had been rescheduling everything. I had changed my whole daily schedule to get up even earlier and work even later because I had so many things that I was trying to fit in and it was just, I couldn't do it in the time that I had. And that's what I felt was I can't do it. And I'm a mom of two kids. So I was getting up earlier, I was working later, and then I had the conversation with you and it came right in the middle of this break where everything was very relaxing and I had so much time. And I said, I'm, that's, I'm gonna do that, uh, th- enough of this, like <laughs> enough of working forever, this is insane, it's not how I wanna live my life. And oh. I started, I c- changed my entire schedule and just like you said, you know, I have a, an, a morning routine, so I have some input time in the morning of just really like meditation and just taking, coming into the day slowly and gently. And then I go right into output for, I actually admit I have it for five hours. <laughs> I don't yet have it for four, but I have it for five of just oh, those, great. Yeah. yeah, those five hours and then I'm done. And it's even thinking about it, it's like, so feels so good yeah and it definitely it's not like it's also we forget like we have these goals right like oh i want to do this and this and this and we totally forget how do we want to live like what type of woman what type of mother what type of person do you want to be and if if we connect that what we want to reach you know if we only ran after that goal, then you might end up as somebody who's always working and always busy and always cranky. But it's not the only way to go. And I, I think you'll notice, and I hope you'll notice that if you've worked five hours, and you allow yourself to stop and to self care, um, then the next day, you'll be so much fresher, and you'll, you know, enjoy starting with your workday, and it will go easier. Yeah. Yeah. I will let you know. I definitely, I can see that because by the end of the week, normally in the past, I was so spent by the time the week was yeah. coming to a close because I'd just been working so hard. And, and I too took that also as something good. Like, okay, I know, but I'm working really hard. Like I should be proud of how many hours instead of, am I living the way that I want to be living? Is this the quality of life? that I want to be creating for myself. Exactly. I mean, busyness is totally a status symbol nowadays. It's completely so, you know, accepted in society to say, oh, I'm so busy. We, we find that something good, which is something I don't really understand because it's not really the way I want to live. Um, and also you are a creative and for the best creative ideas to come up, you'll need some white space, right, in your right. mind. So you need 
to stare out of the window sometimes or to do a yoga class, which is not, you know, staying away from work. It's part of your work because you need it to find new inspiration. And, you know, it's such a different way of thinking, but it's really a nice way of living. That's so important. Just the idea that a yoga class, staring out the window, whatever that is, that isn't taking time away from your work. It's part of your work. It is. Yeah, it really is. So one thing, though, that I wanted to speak to is this idea of when you have four hours or five hours of focus time, whatever amount of time that is, we, as especially as creative people, can... Uh, it took me a long time to associate that level of discipline as a positive thing because mm -hmm. for the longest time I thought creativity is about spontaneity and about inspiration when it comes. And so where do you see the coming together of discipline and creativity? Well, first of all, I think that, you know, total freedom is not freedom in the sense that we oftentimes don't, don't really know what to do with it. And then we end up with this, not happy feeling about what we actually accomplished in the week. And there's nothing more fulfilling than having the idea that you created this beautiful article or a podcast or, you know, something that you're really happy with or really made a step forward in your business. So I think if you want to have that, then to some extent, some discipline is necessary. Um, but I also think that within the discipline, you can be intuitive still. So for example, we all have this idea about an eight hour rhythm, you know, that we need to work eight hour and then we have off 16 hours. Like that's the idea. And not so many people know that we have a very different rhythm within our bodies. And you know, that goes from like 40 to 90 cycles. Um, it depends a bit per person. But most people have somewhere between 40 to 90 minutes per cycle in which we go from super alert to less alert. And so I teach people how they can recognize that in their own bodies. And if you understand the rhythm of your body, you can work in three or four cycles um, based on your highest state of alertness. And then you'll feel you'll have so much productivity in those minutes. And then you can, you know, make yourself a cup of tea or make yourself a hot lunch or, you know, stare out of the window, have a good, decent break, get back to work um, on a way that doesn't feel like you're struggling, but in a flowy manner. And so then the discipline, it sounds, you know, harder than it is because it feels more like, okay, you're working within this window of the four or five hours or whatever that works for you, but it still feels like you can kind of flow back and forth with what your body is signaling to you, you know? So that's, that's the second of all, I think. Yeah. Um, and then the third one, I think it's a myth that creativity comes and goes uh, and that inspiration comes and goes. I think you can increase creativity and that you can make it come earlier than you would have otherwise. And there are tricks of, you know, sitting down and opening up the gates, as I always call it, um, instead of just, just waiting for it. Because sometimes it can be very subtle and um, you can encourage it to, to come to you, you know? And so 
many of the writers, I mean, don't underestimate, like it always seems like writers are just like, they're walking in the park and then suddenly they have this great idea. Sure, sometimes it happens, but oftentimes they've done a journaling practice before that so that they were open to inspiration, so that it came to them once they were walking in the park. But before that, they sat down and did a writing exercise, you know? So sometimes you can definitely stir up that inspiration and it can be so joyful if you've done that and it comes to you and you have a spark and you know where to go to go next. Yeah, so that's great. So those are really, really important. I love um, one, I mean, I definitely love the piece about creativity is always there because I, I have come to learn to believe that. I didn't believe that before, but I, I do now. And, and the, and that this is, and it's both, there's discipline and there's intuition within the discipline of knowing your body, knowing your rhythm and knowing what works best for you within a discipline structure. Um, and I wanted to say a quote that you have when you're talking about the course, and then we're going to mention the course briefly because it's, it's a pretty amazing course. So I want to give people information about it. You said, let me comfort you by saying that you did not fail or avoided to begin in the first place because you lack the mental strength, the discipline, or the talent to live the life that you want. It's just that you lack the support, structure, and some crucial time management skills that are crucial for successful intentional living. While there are many self-help books and trainings available that teach you how to, quote, follow your heart, find your passion, and do what you like, they never explain how... They never explain to you how you can be successful in reaching your goals, how you commit to resolutions and avoid giving up halfway, and how you can be productive and focused but not overworked and stressed. So that's very important that we know that, that it's not that some people are necessarily more disciplined than others and that's how they get so much done, but that these are all skills. These are skills that we learn. And yeah. In the developing of these skills, we can get so much more done in less time. So, Roann, uh, first of all, I want to let people know that your website is Roann Van Voorst, which is R-O-A-N-N-E-V-A-N-V-O-O-R-S-T dot com. Yeah, so, com. It's a Dutch name. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> no need to apologize. So everything is there. And then tell us a little bit about the time management course and I know I'm going to ask you even before you tell it I know it's a year-long course does it matter if people get in a little bit late no absolutely not I mean what I've done with this course is it basically consists of two parts so everybody who enrolls um, and I've you know I've tried to keep it pretty affordable and so everybody who enrolls gets a weekly lesson in your email that's mostly a text document and a workbook where you can fill in uh, the exercises for yourself and it's um, sometimes there's a video exercise in there as well so every week you get a lesson that you can take with you throughout the week and that will help you plan and reflect and get a bit better at time management but then next to that, because I know it's so hard to stick to these new lessons and to stick to resolutions and to a new way of working, I'm offering weekly shared work hours in a digital uh, environment, so where only the members can come. And so every Monday, I have a live video 
or I'm, you know, live 90% of the time. Otherwise, it's a replay, but you can always see the replay. I have a live video where I guide people into an hour of super concentrated work. And it's so much fun because there is a community of entrepreneurs, artists, writers, um, work-at-home moms, and they all log in or they see the replay. And together, we just sit and work each on our own projects. You know, I from my side of the computer, you're from your side of the computer. And then after that, there's some time to chat and to exchange experiences. And so for some people, they really just do this course or this training for the weekly hours of work. Because for them, they say, even if I would learn nothing on time management, um, then still I've worked for 52 hours, super concentrated on my novel, the business that I want to set up, you know, all the other projects that people in my course are working on. So that's for them. Even that is, you know, it's quite a lot of time and you can be sure that you've come closer to your goals. And for other people, they're also really interested in just learning how you can, you know, become more handy with your email box, how you can do things a little bit faster, more efficient so that you have more time to do the stuff that you actually value. So it's it's such an amazing course to uh, to supervise and to uh, offer. That's great. That's great. And I, I end my interviews with gratitude and I one of the things that I'm really grateful for with you and your work is how perfectly you have paired the work that you do. So like you said in the quote that I just read, you know, so many people talk about follow your heart, find your passion, do what you like, do what you love. And for a lot of people, just doing that is so much about moving through the fear. So you have this whole component of your work that you've put an intense amount of research into, and now you have a book, Fear, that's coming, that's out. And yeah. and so like you have this whole piece of, okay, you wanna follow your passion, but fear's in the way. Well, here's how to move through that. And then, as you said, a lot of times though, even when we work with the fear and we learn how to not identify as being afraid, but just as having fears and moving through them, we still don't know how to manage our day-to-day life in such a way that we actually get done what it is that we wanna get done. So the two together are, such a perfect combination and I just appreciate your both intense research into these topics and then the very practical application first personally to your life and then extending it outwards so that all of us can have access to these same tools that are incredibly transformational so thank you for that thanks so much in return I mean I think it was for me so I think one of the greatest lessons I've learned for both themes over time of years is that, you know, we often get this idea that some people are just braver and some people are just more successful, but it's really just skills that we can all learn. And so that's why I try to offer super concrete step-by-step tools that, you know, can at least give us, I don't know, just the hope, I guess, but also the evidence that we can do that too. We just didn't know how, you know, and that's a very kind of um, when, when I realized that for myself, it just changed my whole perspective of myself and how the world works. So I really hope that it can do the same for, for other people as well. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for being part of this, Rowan. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. 
I'm Daphne Cohn, and you've been listening to the Creativity Habit Podcast. Head on over to thecreativityhabit.com to read this week's profile, Rituals and Routines, Day in the Life of Photographer Nicole McGonville. To read about the daily routines and practices of artists and makers, go to thecreativityhabit.com. And you can follow The Creativity Habit on Instagram and Facebook. If you haven't yet, please go to the iTunes podcast and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. And then join me next week for another Creativity Habit podcast. Thank you for listening.